Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. I never once uttered the word transformation on the ship. Not once. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't smart enough in business techniques to, to come up with transformation, but I'm a dumb football player. And to me, if you block and tackle and execute better than anybody else, you're going to the Super Bowl. So all we did was just improved our blocking and tackling and our execution. And you get those small wins and then they start to snowball. It's like if you got 1% interest a day on your bank account, after a year, you're at you know 365% improvement in your portfolio. But if you say, I'm going to swing for the fences and I want a 300% return, you'll probably end up losing money. So it's just focusing that 1% a day and it's manageable. It's not, doesn't scare people. And it gives people confidence to do that 10x return down the road. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 41. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Abrashoff. Did I get that right, Mike? You did. Okay, fantastic. Mike Abrashoff is at the center of one of the most remarkable modern-day stories of organizational transformation. At the age of 36, the Navy selected Mike to become commander of USS Benfold. At the time, he was the most junior commanding officer in the Pacific Fleet on a ship that was plagued by low morale, high turnover, and abysmal performance evaluations. Few thought that the ship could improve. Yet 12 months later, the ship was ranked number one in performance using the same crew. People were amazed and the lesson was clear. Leadership matters and culture is everything. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Happy to join you. It's really, really a pleasure. And as I think I mentioned to you beforehand, I know I have some colleagues that are super excited that we're talking today. I'm super excited we're talking today. I have read your book and then I listened to it more recently on Audible. So I got kind of caught up a little. And you know, I didn't even think to ask you this question when I was putting my questions together. But as I was reading this bio, it just jumped right at me because it's so interesting. When I started in school leadership, so one of the questions that was posed to me is, am I going to work with the same administrative team? Obviously, you're not going to clean house in a school and fire everybody and this kind of thing. Maybe in the NFL, you could do that. You know, you're an incoming head coach. You can kind of fire out all the coaches, bring in your own group. That works. In many organizations, it doesn't. And you had tremendous success in a short period of time without any meaningful, if any, change in personnel. So I know you, I didn't kind of prep you for this question, but I'm kind of curious to get your take on it. When somebody is starting new, actually in my book, Becoming the New Boss, I talk about how leaders need to come in, learn the culture, learn the history, become acquainted with people, build equity. But what is your take for somebody new who's walking in, in terms of holding on to the old guard, bringing in your own group of people? How would you advise, guide people in that important process? So I'm not going to tell people how to run their business, but in the Navy, when a new captain comes in, I can't change anybody out. I can't change the executive team. I've got to play the hand that's, that's dealt there. Uh-huh. But um, as you get more senior and you become an admiral, um, you do have wide uh, latitude to bring your own team with you. Uh-huh. And I've seen admirals who will 
keep the same cadre of four or five people and take them from job to job to job. Uh-huh. And it's because he's, he or she is comfortable with them, but they get a little insular after a time. Yeah. And they are not open to new ideas. And I've often thought if I ever stayed long enough to make Admiral, instead of focusing on four or five, I would want to expand the team of people uh-huh. who buy into my philosophy and tr- constantly bring in new people to, um, to get them inculcated in the, the type of leadership style that I, that I would like them to, to help me lead with. And that keeps your team fresh? Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. So uh-huh. uh, I'm not going to say don't change anybody out. You have to assess. But in right. general, whenever I took over a new position, I never made any changes for the first 30 days. Because okay. I wanted to see what worked and what wasn't working because a lot of times people will come in and say, oh, I did this at my last, last job. I'm going to do it here. Yeah. But you might break something that's already working. Right. So I wanted to be very careful not to break anything um, that was already working. That makes and sense. So um, that's why I just listen and assess whenever I take over a new position and then I can make informed, better informed decisions. And you felt in 30 days you'd have that information? Yes. That'll be enough time for you? Correct. Cool. And, and I'm asking questions in that time. Why do we do it this way? Uh-huh. What's the rationale? How can, is there a better way to do this? So you're kind of walking around, observing, asking questions, not right. being invasive, but getting all the information you need. So I can make better decisions. Yeah, yeah. That's a great strategy. Fantastic. So I'd love to go deeper there, but I actually want to go to the other end of the bio, the very, very end where we talked about something which... I think can be very cliche, but I know for you, it's not cliche. And so I just want to understand what you mean by it. You talked about leadership matters and culture is everything. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about leadership and culture. We get it. But what does that mean specifically to you? And what would you say are examples of strong leadership versus weak? We can, we can break this apart because it's a big question. So we could, we could kind of parse it here. And also culture. What does a positive culture look like to you, Mike? And what have you seen that's more on the toxic side of things? So you know what's most amazing about USS Benfold is, as I told you, I couldn't change the crew out. Uh-huh. And when I was assessing that first 30 days, what I found were some tremendously talented people but there was no collaboration. There was nobody taking ownership. They didn't Mm -hmm. feel empowered, so they wouldn't take ownership. And they knew that if they took any initiative and they came up short, you know, they would be berated. Right. So, you know, I, so I focused on the culture and that treated people with respect and dignity. And I interviewed every sailor individually, all 310 of them. And I asked them, what do you like most about the ship? What do you like least? What would you change if you were the captain? And I turned military hierarchy upside down and I said to them, I don't care what your age is. I don't care what your rank is. I don't care how long you've been here. If you have an idea how to improve a process, 1%, I want to hear from you. You know, you can't change the rest of the Navy. Let's just improve 1% a day. And if we do that, nobody's going to touch us. So by creating a culture that was free of fear and because sailors felt empowered, they started taking personal accountability for the results And that talent that was already there started collaborating, working together. Uh, We tore down the silos among the five departments. And that that is the culture where people aren't afraid to float ideas on how to improve something. And that's how adding a culture to talent can deliver phenomenal results. 
Beautiful. So what I heard is that you kind of brought the two questions together in a way. In other words, by creating, by using your leadership to change the culture, you created new opportunities for leadership, new opportunities for communication, new opportunities for collaboration, for empowerment. So it's not just isn't there, isn't it nice we have this culture thing going on where we're giving out, you know, just to use maybe some of the, the high-tech examples, we're giving out free food and everyone's sitting around on beanbags and singing Kumbaya or whatever it looks like. You're taking it to perhaps the most rigid environment one could imagine where there's protocol for everything right. and you need to check in on basically everything you do. And yet at the same time, what you said was everybody here, regardless of age or rank, regardless of background or experience, has ideas, has value to add. And your job as leader is to put them into position to create the environment, the holding space, if you will. Almost I'm thinking a little bit of the, the book of, uh, by, by Ron Heifetz of Leadership Without Easy Answers, I think is the title, where he talks about creating like a holding space for problems to work their way through and not just to come in with all the answers. And in many cases, just by giving people opportunity to voice their concerns or, or offer creative alternatives, I remember the book, you, you save time, you save money, you created more fun opportunities for your sailors and for your, you know, your crew. And it just became a funner, more dynamic, more exciting place to work. And it led to increased performance. So we didn't have yeah. fun just for the sake of having fun. There was a method. Oh, sure. Because I'm playing to win. Um, when you're in the military, you do not play to come in number two. And so I want to win and win overwhelmingly if we ever get called into combat. And so uh-huh. When people feel like they own the organization and they feel empowered, surprisingly, I found out discipline improves in that type of environment than if I had just created order takers waiting for me to tell them what to do. And what was a, a defining moment for me on the ship? When I started interviewing every sailor, I'll be honest, I wasn't very good at it at the beginning. It was something I, I grew into. But I'll never forget one of my early interviews. A technician walks into my cabin, and he asked me how to do a procedure. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you're the technician. Why are you asking me how to do this? And instead uh-huh. of telling him how to do it, I said, what do you think? And he said, Captain, nobody on this ship has ever asked me to think before. I said, well, I'm asking you to think. If you own this, how would you do this? And he said, this is what I do. And I said, do it. He turned in flawless performance. He turned in better performance than if I had told him what the answer was because he felt empowered and he owned it. And what do you think eventually became it's your ship that I used to say to my sailors, it's your ship, you own it. If you see something that needs to be done, step up to the plate and and take ownership. And I was at an event about eight, eight months ago. And the CEO was pointing his finger at everybody in the room and said, you need to be accountable for the results. And I took a step back and I thought, in two years, I never once told a sailor, you need to be accountable for the results. What I said to them was, what do you think? It's your ship. They felt empowered. And because they felt empowered, then they took accountability for the results. And what organizations try to do is tell people they're accountable without empowering them. And that was Mm -hmm. our secret sauce was accountability through empowerment. And it was the crew that turned, that drove the turnaround and drove the excellent performance. 
Beautiful. You know, there's so much depth in what you're saying, Mike, and I wish we could stay here for a long time, but I do, I do think this piece is important because the language, I, I can imagine the leader that you're describing thinks that he was empowering his people, but at the same time, what I think in reality happened, sorry, a little technology snafu there. What I think really was happening is that he's thinking he's empowering his people, but in reality, he's just creating, you know, more of a sense of, of, of responsibility or I'm trying to think of the proper way of saying it. It's not really that he empowered his people to do, but he's holding them accountable for the bottom line. And that's almost worse because it's like, you're not really giving me the tools by which or the, the pathway by which to make a positive impact. And yet you're making me responsible if we don't deliver. Exactly right. Whereas you took the opposite approach. You were, of course, you have to be accountable for your behaviors and your actions, but I'm giving you a, a way by which that accountability could manifest in a sense that you could make a positive impact. What happened when they started taking ownership is they stopped pointing fingers at each other. Uh -huh. Instead started working together, say, how can we make, you know, they started talking across departmental lines and saying, hey, I need your help to make this process better. And so the collaboration happened organically instead of me ordering it yeah. from on high. Yeah. And in my coaching work, it's interesting to me how many people I'll say to you, what's your biggest challenge? You know, what's the, what's the greatest difficulty you're dealing with? And they'll turn to me, like you said, and they said, nobody ever asked me that before. You know, I never really had the opportunity. And I think a leader whether leaders operating as a coach, which every leader should be within their organizations, asking the right questions, giving people the space in which to think, but also keeping it open, you know, and, and open-ended enough that they could, they could process, but then again, creating some direction out of it. When you ask open-ended questions that give people the opportunity to not only think, but then take action, you're really creating a framework for, for, for getting great things done. So, um, after I got out of the Navy, I was asked to speak at a small bank in Chicago, 100 people, 100 employees. And it was everybody from the president of the bank on down to the cleaning lady. Uh -huh. Before I started, he asked every employee to stand up and tell everybody else what they're most proud of in their life. And Interesting. They, they get to the cleaning lady. And I could see the apprehension on their faces. They had absolutely no idea what she was going to say. Uh -huh. And very confidently, she stood up and said, my son graduated from the University of Chicago Law School this weekend. And she said, I've come to work to this bank for 30 years so that he could have a better life than what I had. And you could have heard a pin drop. The president of the bank, his jaw dropped open, worked with her for 30 years, never knew anything about her. And in my own crude way, when I interviewed sailors, I'd ask them, you know, what are you most proud of in, the, in your life? And then I could use that to connect with them and engage them and make them feel like I care about them and their journey. And if people feel like you care about their success, they will follow you into battle. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, you had a lot of, I don't want to say janitor like, but I mean, people with not necessarily the backgrounds or the pedigrees that one would anticipate with high end success. In other words, you had people who came from, you know, maybe didn't finished their schooling or, or came from difficult homes or difficult you know, neighborhoods and communities. And yet they really grew tremendously and you got a chance to know what their backgrounds were and then help them in their, in their journey, if I understood correctly. So one of my biggest mistakes in the book is that I didn't put myself in their shoes and how they would take it when they read the book. Okay. I said they came from troubled or disadvantaged backgrounds 
they did, but they didn't view themselves as being disadvantaged Interesting. from a broken home. And so they, they, they kind of resented the fact that I made that comment, but everybody else would say, you know, you didn't start out life at the top rung of the economic ladder. You know, you weren't handed anything in your life. And so they set low expectations for them. And what I wanted to do was to set high expectations for them, yeah. and break that culture and to train them and to treat them with respect and dignity. And they delivered. Excellent. You know, like I said, we could spend all day on this because this, you know, it's fascinating, the psychology of leadership, the psychology of culture, the psychology. If, if we were just better equipped, if we understood more about how people think, what they respond to, what gets them excited, what, how they really think about themselves, all this kind of thing, you know, leadership is not often about the technical know-how. You know, you need to know how a ship operates, for example. You need to know how a business operates. You need to know certain things, but you need, and you've already talked about this, Mike, you don't necessarily need to be the resident expert, but what you need to do is create the environment and understand how your people operate, what they need from you, that they could do their very best. So let's now take you back to the beginning. You're 36 years old. You're the most junior uh, commanding officer out in the Pacific or perhaps beyond. And you are given a daunting task, which is not uncommon, right? New teachers often get the hardest assignments, hardest classes to teach. New employees may have the most undesirable tasks. You were given the poorest performing ship. How would somebody in your position, how did you muster the confidence? Or how did you get yourself to a level, maybe you faked it initially, but how did you get yourself to a level of confidence that you really could do this? I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And every night, you know, before going to bed, I'd ask myself, I wonder if the Navy knew what a mistake they made putting me in. <laughs> uh, because I didn't have the self-confidence. And it's something that grew with time as, because I was trying new things. Because what happened previously, and I'm not here to, you know, badmouth anybody, but it was the typical top-down command and control, my way or the highway, hard-ass, you know, type leadership style. And I'm trying to implement, introduce a new model that to be honest, I didn't know in advance how it was going to work out or even how it was going to perform and how and what I was going to do. I mean, I learned on the job. And once I started getting some successes, I started to gain more confidence. And once I had the confidence, to, I could challenge more ingrained bad habits that have existed you know, for 242 years. And so... It was the success, initial successes that gave me the courage uh, to try to become even better. Beautiful. I realized there are no limits. Like when I took command of the ship, if I could just get the fleet average on retention, we'll be fine. And then by focusing on one sailor at a time, my last year, we got, we had the highest retention rate of any ship in the Navy, almost hundred percent. It was unheard of retention. But initially I was just going for fleet average. I would have been a hero. But once I had the confidence, I realized the only one keeping us from becoming better are ourselves. It's not the rest of the Navy, it's ourselves. So once I got over that mental hurdle, there was no stopping us. Yeah. And that's really interesting. I'd like to make one point and then ask you a question, follow up to what you just said. The point is when we start as leaders, you know, we we are often terrified and we wonder what's going to be and did, did they make a mistake? Did we make a mistake? You know, there's a lot of confidence issues at play. And yet at the same time, if you can go after 
small wins Correct. and achieve things, especially something that will not ruffle a lot of feathers. Correct. You know, give people a sense. You know, when I when I started in my own leadership journey, I went for certain cosmetic upgrades in the building, improving the way that we paid our teachers. To, so, believe it or not, we still weren't on direct deposit. Wherever it was, little things like that, and we we had those small wins. So then people said, "Oh, this person is." here to make positive improvements. And even if then some more difficult challenges arise, there'll be some equity behind it. So it seems like you followed a similar path and that also builds your confidence because I accomplished something and I achieved and I'm ready to do more. And you and you also set what seemed to be realistic goals, something that you could already be measured as a success if you achieve it, not going to blow anyone out of the water just yet, but then you took it and then you you 10x it. You know, you really went beyond, which is fantastic. You're absolutely correct. At the beginning, it was just the little things. Uh-huh. Uh, like when I would walk down a passageway, if there was trash on the deck, I'd bend over and pick it up. In the history of the Navy, no captain has ever picked up trash before. You call the person responsible for the space and say, clean it. But sailors would watch me picking up trash. And then they became embarrassed that I'm picking up trash in their space and then they start taking better care of it. And just slowly, you, you raise the standards. And, um, and I started the interviews probably 30 days after I got there. And when I got a great idea from a sailor in an interview, I had a public address microphone right at my desk. I would hit the button right then and there with the sailor sitting there and say, Ben Fold, this is the captain. This is the idea I just got. This is who I got it from. It makes sense to me. We're going to implement it right now. I want your full support. And when people heard change happening in real time, they said they knew I was serious. And that empowered them to to become even better and come up with even greater ideas. That's fantastic. So, So here's a question for you. It's something you alluded to before, and you've said it multiple times in different ways. Never done before in the Navy, totally unheard of. How does a leader regardless of, of environment, know when should I be following quote-unquote protocol and when do I break ranks? When do I do, do my own thing? Is there any kind of rule of thumb that you could offer us to give us a sense of when do you kind of go with your gut, your own, your own personal style, and when do you um, honor or respect tradition, culture, history, et cetera? So that was the other mistake I made in the book in that I give the impression that I broke rules and regulations. I didn't. I worked within the Navy framework and there are things that if I do, I can get fired for them like fiscal malfeasance or, you know, creating a bad culture, you know, a hostile work environment. I can get relief for that. So all I did was challenge long held beliefs to see if there wasn't a better way. And to give you an example, whenever you see a ship heading out to port, if you live near the water, you see buoys on each side of the channel and that the ship isn't supposed to go outside the buoy line because you'll run aground. So the Navy doesn't tell me to get down the center of the channel. Yet if you watch every ship heading out to sea, they always get down the center of the channel. But maybe if you hug this buoy over to the left, it will set you up better to make that next turn to the right. And so everything we did, I was operating within the buoy lines, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't going down the center of the channel. And that being creative also became part of our culture about how to challenge things that we've done for forever, but no longer make sense. And I wasn't afraid since I wasn't spending money on myself 
and everything we did, if it appeared on the front page of the Washington Post tomorrow, I'd be proud of. And that's when you get in trouble, when you do things that you'd be embarrassed about or that you embarrass your organization. And we never went there. Okay. Yeah. I love that metaphor. The idea of staying between the buoys, but sort of straddling the sides a little bit. I don't know exactly if you framed it that way, but that idea of staying within the context of what's acceptable, but still testing and experimenting and identifying opportunities, because it's not always about total transformation, or at least not in one shot. Right. You may achieve total transformation. You talked about retention, for example, Mike. So that, that's a total transformation. The level of retention that you, that you had amongst your, amongst your sailors was beyond what anyone had experienced before, but you didn't achieve it with one fell swoop of whatever that could have looked like. You, you took small incremental steps to eventually hit it out of the park. Correct. And oftentimes we think we got to do something big and massive and attention grabbing and maybe even bend the rules in order to get there. But if you, if you are consistent, if you're focused, if you know what a good outcome looks like, and yet you're willing to ask questions and kind of experiment a little bit to see, can you tweak it? Can you improve it? 1% improvement here, half a, half a percent over there, 5% over here. Over time, it aggregates it and it creates like total, a total change. Correct. I never once uttered the word transformation on the ship. Not once. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't smart enough in business techniques to, to come up with transformation. But it was, I, I'm a dumb football player. And to me, if you block and tackle and execute better than anybody else, you're going to the Super Bowl. And so mm-hmm. all we did was just improved our blocking and tackling and our execution. And you get those small wins. And then they start to snowball. It's like... If you got 1% interest a day on your bank account, after a year, you're at you know, 365% improvement in your portfolio. Right. But if you say, I'm going to swing for the fences and I want a 300% return, you'll probably end up losing money. So it's just focusing that 1% a day and it's manageable. It's not doesn't scare people and it gives people confidence to do that 10x return down the road. Yeah, that's awesome. So you've mentioned a lot, but is there any of all of your achievements, which one are you most proud of? And it doesn't have to be in the context of the Navy. It, it just came into view this year. Okay. It's taken 20 years to figure out what I'm most proud of. And it isn't the medals or the awards. We have roughly 300 ships in the Navy. And we have roughly 70 admirals administering to those 300 ships, which means statistically every four ships will produce one admiral. Well, my second in command is a two-star admiral today. He's president of the Navy War College in Newport, Rhode Island. One of my department heads is a one-star, just got command of the Abraham Lincoln Aircraft Carrier Battle Group. And two of my division officers got selected for one-star. And so that means that one ship produced four admirals, whereas historically four ships will produce one admiral. So if you ask me what I'm most proud of, it's these people who are out there Taking it further. That's unbelievable. Yeah, you, you talked about football before. So you read all the time about this coach's tree and that coach's tree, like Bill Parcells and all the people who coached for him that are now head coaches and Bill Belichick and who, who his assistant coaches, what they've become. It's fascinating that a leader can and does, if not think about it actively, but at least ultimately produces, if you do the job right, 
you are invariably going to produce other leaders who may do it even better than you did it. But you have a lot to be proud of because ultimately what you did is that you created the opportunity for them to grow, to think, to develop all the stuff we talked about before. And then they have their own you know, innate interests and desires and aspirations. And all of that comes together. And then they sort of extend all of your work and multiply it many, many fold. And if you think about it, people are observant. And if I'm watching people get promoted by working for this one boss and going out and do great things, I'm going to want to go work for that boss. Right. So that boss then gets to choose the cream of the crop because people are beating down his or her door to work for them. So people are, are watching and, and if you, you know, if you chew people up, they won't want to come work for you. But if you are seen as that leader where you will personally develop, that's how you get the best and brightest to come work for you. Yeah. I love it. And on top of it, other, other bosses, other leaders are watching all of this, maybe a little bit from a distance. And I'm sure other captains were watching what you were doing on Bancraft and they started, I know you talked about this in the book that at least other sailors were noticing, but I'm sure other captains were noticing too. And you may or may not know about specific things that other ships wound up doing as a result of uh, your, your trailblazing uh, approach to things, but it has this sort of like exponential effect where you know, everybody's seeing the new and the better and they want to, they want to kind of like catch lightning in a bottle and do more of that also. So you'll never fully know where it ends, but you'll know that the impact was significant. And uh, I would hear from sailors on other ships that they would call their assignment person and say, I'd like to get assigned to Benfold. And they all, the response was, since nobody ever leaves, there's never any job openings. So Benfold became the ship that other sailors throughout the fleet wanted to get assigned to. Okay, so I I, th- I think now I may have mispronounced the name of the ship a couple of times along the way. Benfold. If I said Bencraft before, it was a mistake. It's some it's another name I have like wedged in my head. So for all listeners, it's totally on my end, Mike. Uh, it's really been fantastic having this conversation. Would love to go much deeper with you, but at the same time, one of the highlights of our conversation always is our rapid fire. And so we're going to pivot a little bit and just sort of get to know you a little bit better as Mike the person. And so my first question is something about the Navy that nobody knows about. Short answers, please. Something about the Navy that nobody knows anything about. Yeah. Something like I, as a regular civilian, I wouldn't expect. That we truly have wonderful young men and women in our military and they're smart. I had a sailor who had a, scored a 1490 out of 1600 on her SAT. And so what most people don't realize is how smart uh, our people are. Um, when I joined the Navy, you know, in 82, it was like, go to prison or join the military. Now it's about ones and O's and we have incredibly smart people. So if you're looking to add personnel to your business, hire a veteran is what I would tell you. Nice. Okay. Um, a place in the Pacific that everybody should visit. Australia, my favorite a country that I visited, uh, but I hear New Zealand is even better, but I've not been there yet. Okay. I've been to 61 countries in 49 states. And on March 29th, I get to my 50th state, North Dakota. So if anybody's out in Fargo and want to join me for a beer on uh, March 29th, I'm buying. It's my 50th state. Oh, congratulations. The kind of books you like to read. Actually, um, I'm a political junkie. Mm. So mostly I read political things. I'm not into sci-fi or anything else. I'm into current events. 
current political landscape. Correct. Okay. And lastly, a relaxation technique for busy, stressed professionals. So I watched, when we were at sea, I watched every sunset and every sunrise while we were at sea. And people knew not to bug me because I loved watching the sunrise and the sunset. And so I live on a canal in Florida, in Miami Beach, and I watch every sunset. And I'm, I don't, I will admit I don't get up to watch sunrise anymore, but I do watch every sunset when I'm here. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's beautiful. Nature can be so calming and it just connects you to the universe. It connects you to a sense of purpose. And whether you're a believer, so to speak, or not, it kind of gives you perspective that we often otherwise uh, forget. So, so let's, let's wrap up by giving everyone an opportunity, Mike, to find you, you know, where, where are you hanging out online? How could people connect with you and really uh, gain from, from your wisdom and your experiences? Well, I'm not on social media, you know, so I'm not on, I'm not even on Facebook. Everybody says Facebook will crash the day I join. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you can Don't be so hard on yourself. It survived me. It'll survive you. I'd rather spend my time doing other things than okay. constantly checking a Facebook feed. But I'm on LinkedIn, and my website is apgleadership.com. Uh, it's for Aegis Performance Group, APG Leadership. And I've got a n- wonderful little consulting group, and uh, my partner is Stacey Cunningham, and, and she's fantastic. So if you want to check out our website, apgleadership.com. And who do you serve? Who are your primary clients? Uh, we do a lot in the healthcare and also in the uh, oil and gas industry as well. Okay. One final life lesson, Mike. I mean, you've given us so much. I feel a little greedy asking, but I always like to wrap up on a high. And so if there's one final nugget that you've, you haven't talked about yet, or maybe you mentioned in passing that you really want to emphasize, it could be short, a little bit longer, whatever you're comfortable with. Give us something to really wrap up our, our conversation today. Assume your shipmates want to do a great job. I never challenge anybody's motives. And if something didn't work out, instead of blaming them, I would look inward and ask myself, did I communicate the goals? Did I give them the training to do a great job? Did I give them the time and the resources to do a great job? But most importantly, did the process support them uh, delivering the results? Because people don't come to work wanting to screw up. Fascinating. They want to do a great job. We've got to create that culture and foundation that will permit them to do a great job. Yeah, it's awesome. As a former teacher, I can relate to that very much because we have kids who misbehave in class. And the natural tendency is to think this kid is a troublemaker. He or she doesn't you know, really want to learn. They're just here to make my life miserable. But we often have to think about, am I creating the conditions for success? And am I giving them the tools? And really, they want to succeed, but maybe they never have tasted it before. And it's easier to look like a deviant, so to speak, than to look stupid. Or maybe they're not getting nutri- proper nutrition. Maybe they're not yeah. getting, uh, three meals that we take for granted. Right. Um, and that's what's causing them not to perform. So there's always things, if you scratch the surface and go deeper, you can, ca- you can figure out the causes of things. That so that you can help correct them and be part of the solution. Yeah, go deeper. I love it. Okay, Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time in conversation today. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, and I have some colleagues that are like beyond delighted that we're speaking, and I'm super excited to share this conversation with them. I've learned a ton, 
It's been very humbling for me that you've taken a few minutes to have this conversation and I look forward to spreading it far and wide. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Looking forward to staying in touch. You got it. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to head over to impactfulcoaching.com where you can sign up for our blog, download free leadership eBooks, and so much more. 